Tonight's guest of the Late Night History Podcast is Merrill Tengestal. Merrill is a trailblazer in the world of aviation, as she is, at this time, the only black woman to ever fly the U-2 Dragon Lady spy plane. The U-2 spy plane has conducted high-altitude reconnaissance missions for the U.S. since the 1950s, and in the last 10-plus years has achieved a 97% mission success rate. The U-2 is unique in that it requires all pilots to wear specialized pressure suits to fly at altitude, which essentially they look more like astronauts than aviators in their single-seat cockpit. We discuss Merrill's life story from childhood to present day. Throughout the episode, Merrill shares interesting anecdotes throughout her 13 years flying the U-2, including missions, often eight hours or more, across five combat deployments. She also tells us about the complicated nature of eating and drinking while in the cockpit. These meals come in toothpaste-like tubes and have some wild flavors, like zapple sauce, which is caffeinated, and even New England clam chowder, which, as a Massachusetts guy, doesn't sound too appetizing, even for me. Merrill is the author of her memoir, Shatter the Sky, and has many additional anecdotes within those pages, including more detail about the humorous story she shares on here about chauffeuring Steven Spielberg to observe a landing of the Dragon Lady while filming the movie Bridge of Spies. So without further ado, here is episode 30 with Meryl Tengestal. we can just get into it like for for the audience uh can you say what your what's what's the name of your book and talk about that yeah so the name of my book is shatter the sky um it came out a little over a year ago it actually believe it or not it came out the day my mom died so that was kind of a bittersweet moment um had been working on it for a little bit uh, with uh, a ghostwriter, and uh, you know, it's just basically about myself and how I became the first and only black woman to fly the U two uh, aircraft. So, for people who don't know, the U two spy plane uh, has been around in the Air Force inventory for sixty seven years, and uh, it's still it's still the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. <laughs> And before we go into, I know we want, I want to dive into more like the history of the YouTube, but uh, for the audience, um, can you talk about your childhood a little bit? I know you grew up in the Bronx and I'm, I live in Massachusetts, so I'm a Red Sox oh. fan. So oh. I'll, I'll let it slide for this episode. I will let you slide. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm still, you know, I think we have a common enemy now, um, the Houston Astros, because I yep. am, I was mortified that the Yankees got swept. Oh, it was terrible, but you know, there's <laughs> next year. I don't know if uh, I don't know if Judge is gonna stay. He's been offered a lot of money, turned it down, so I don't know what he's gonna do. Um, so growing up in the Bronx, um, born and raised, grew up in, was born in the early '70s, 1971. So I lived in a place called Co-op City, which was 
um, all these sky rise buildings built on this place called Freedom Land, where it was a place that kids used to go in the 60s to play. And, and I heard it was a nice area, but they built all these high rises as a new community of diversity and inclusion. And uh, most of the people who moved in there were black and Jewish. <laughs> and, you know, growing up during that time, for me, there were just a lot of gender type roles that one should play. Like girls should be sugar and spice and everything nice, right? And then boys could be the rough and tumble. I was definitely uh, the latter. You know, I definitely was not, Barbies were not in my uh, repertoire. Soldiers, you know, G.I. Joe, Kung Fu Grip. <laughs> Those were the things that were cool. So, you know, I got ostracized a lot just for being that type of kid that just wanted to play baseball or or play basketball or play uh, stickball, which we used to play, or play dodgeball. So um, for me, growing up wasn't the best because I was called a tomboy a lot. And, you know, being a young Black girl in the Bronx, you know, you didn't want to be singled out that way, but that's how it worked. So um, it didn't deter me. It was just a lot to bear at that young age. And uh, for anyone who does get made fun of out there, you know, it's just kind of hard growing up when you're the one who's different. So well, that was me. And I also know that um, you have a passion for music and you got that from uh, your father. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So my my dad was a musician and I from what I remember of him, because he left by the time I was seven or eight, he you know, he played in a band and I was always intrigued by the instruments that he had. And he never wanted me to touch any of them because like all kids, they destroy stuff. I remember my two year old, I had some monitor speakers. He put his hands through it <laughs> at two. And I was like, ah, you know, you can't get mad at him. It's just like he's a baby. So and he just looks at me with those cute eyes. But my dad was not having it. So um I, but I was always interested in music. Um, little known fact, my mom, when she used to play a lot of records, she would repeat records played in repetition over and over again, like the same album. It was kind of crazy. So uh, for me, I picked up on a lot of nuances in music. And um, as I got older, when I was five, playing the recorder, and just I just gravitated towards music. And it kind of stuck with me. And it and it's actually pretty useful throughout my childhood. And as I grew up, it was kind of an outlet for me. So, And uh, what type of like genre, genres? What kind of music do I like? Yeah. Um, man, just about anything. Um, I'm not really a big fan of country too much, but there are some um, Chris Stapleton I enjoy, Tennessee whiskey a little bit. That's That's pretty... You know, that man has some chops. Um, let's see, some maybe some old country, Charlie Pride. Um, but I really like, I, I mean, I like R&B. I like rock, you know, 80s rock. I'm kind of embarrassed I would live through that. But, you know, when it's posted on Stranger Things, you know, it's it's all right. It's all good. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I was definitely into hip-hop, rap techno music um in my high school i had one friend uh michael mikhail uh he was he was first generation russian like his family moved in 
moved from Russia in the co-op city and him and I used to hang out and listen to Pink Floyd all day and then listen to techno. So I, my range of musics, it spans across all. And of course the classicals, classical musics, of course, uh, you know, Beethoven, Mozart. I like that stuff. So everything to me always has something to like about it. And can you talk about um, what served as a motivation to um, like maybe go into the military or get into become a pilot? Um. Yeah, so my motivation to become a pilot really stemmed from when I was seven, eight years old. When I was younger, I just watched a lot of science fiction, a lot of Star Trek. And I love the fact that the Enterprise was this diverse crew of people who had these skill sets that went out somewhere to an an unknown situation and they use their skill set to navigate through that. And for some reason, as a kid, like I was all about it. Like I was like, man, they're using their minds. It's dangerous. Um, you know, they get to do really cool things. And I said, I want to be an astronaut. So at that age, I decided, okay, I'm going to be an astronaut. And I said, well, how am I going to get there? The only thing I could really look at is current astronauts, no one who looked like me, but I said, okay, they all went to college and and uh i looked at the starfleet academy based off of gene roddenberry and i'm like okay they went to the academy i'll go to college and they're all science like so i'll be good in math and science didn't know if i was i just said i'm gonna be good in math and science and i looked at everything once i made that decision i looked at everything through the lens and i still do today as experiences to put in my toolbox because one day I'm going to need that experience to navigate the unknown. So whether it's music, whether it was a class, whether it was reading, I looked at those things as how is this going to help me in the future? And I didn't know how it would, I just knew it would benefit me. So that's what I did in junior high school and high school. You know, I would just, if, if it was something that I had not done before, I would do it. And um, can you talk about like what impact the Challenger disaster might have had on you, on your, like maybe your mindset? I know like if you're growing up and just kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So um, if I remember the Challenger happened in either 85, 86, and I was about, you know, 14, 15 at the time. And look, I don't mean to sound cold and callous, but the Challenger explosion didn't deter me. Um, it was like, okay, it's dangerous, but man, I think this would be really cool. I, I looked at it as the opportunity that my, my chances of becoming an astronaut got a lot more because a lot of kids were scared at that time. And whatever, the fact that they wanted to be an astronaut no longer happened, but me and a friend of mine, we were, we were still more determined than ever. We're like, yeah, we're going to do this. I, I had been asked this question before, like being afraid of death. I mean, one thing that's certain on this earth while we're born, death is inevitable, right? So is it going to happen peacefully? No, nah, most of the time not. So why not just do it? You know, why not die doing something you love or something that you're passionate about? Um, I always had that attitude. <laughs> and 
I still have that attitude. Um, experiences to put in my tool uh, tool belt for the future, and you know we're gonna die. So let's you know let's die spectacularly. No, I, I like that. I recently saw something that said like we're all gonna die, so we might as well have fun while we're uh, we do something fun, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and I knew that at 14, 15, maybe it was because I was, you know, as, as a teenager, you're cynical and life is just, you know, dark anyway. But um, it was that attitude like, yeah, I'm, I'm still doing this. And then after high school, I was actually going to ask you uh, before that about um, the Bronx bowlers, just because I'm interested in sports. And I know you had that you played that. So can you just talk about that league a little bit? Yeah, so I was, you know, one thing about my mom, she was in a lot of bowling leagues. When I grew up, my second home was a bowling alley. And most people don't think that. They look at me and they say, oh, you're from the Bronx. What do you know about bowling? I know a lot about bowling. I could probably open up business-wise a bowling alley and be able to maintain and do everything well. Um, yeah, my mom was on three leagues. And then on Saturdays, I was on a league. And when I got to high school, I joined the bowling team and then I would go and do, man, I would do a whole bunch of tournaments where it was like um, single elimination, um, pyramid style bowling. And you just keep bowling until you got eliminated, single elimination. Um, and then when I went to college and I came back, I was uh, doing, um, you know, scratch leagues, no handicap. So uh, we were pretty serious, a lot of, a lot of stuff, but I think you're asking about the one time my mom and I did a tournament, a mother, daughter, father, son tournament. And this was the only one we did. And it was, um, it was outside the Bronx. And it was definitely um, in a place where it was predominantly, you know, it's Caucasian, probably Italian. And um, we went out there and where I, where I originally came from was Gun Hill Road. So they had a bowling alley there. Um, and we all rolled up in there. And I'm sure, you know, this was like a local tournament for them because they were giving out um, scholarships, scholarship money. And they were probably like, ah, oh, they'll we'll beat these guys easily. But my mom and I, like we came in there for some, we came in there on a mission. And we ended up, based on how we were bowling, we were either going to be in third or fourth. So the, the last game was between us and a father and son. And we beat them out, um, you know, kind of going back and forth. And, you know, at the end, we beat them. I probably beat them by the ninth or 10th frame. So it was pretty close. And you, man, that felt so good. <laughs> it just it just felt really good because one, you know, it's a mother daughter versus a father and son. So you got the gender thing. Then you got the fact that a bunch of Bronx people come into someone else's borough and just kicks butt. You know, you got to feel good about that. That's like, that's like when the Red Sox lose to the Yankees. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm going to put that in there. <laughs> no, that, I, that's... Uh... No, I just wanted to ask you about the, your bowling league, and I appreciate all uh, New York Yankees and Red Sox jabs and in, in the future. So, uh. <laughs> oh no, that's I mean, it's. I think a lot of other states think that we're gonna fight about it, but I think I've I've never, 
when I've gone to a Yankees game and there's Red Sox fans, it's like there's a lot of love there. Like it's over a hundred years of banter. So it's yeah, it's so much love and it's so much fun. Um, you know, there's never it's it's never contentious like in a mean way. It's just always good spirited. So nothing but right, love I've for had- my uh Boston folks, Massachusetts folks. Yeah, I've had the same experience, which is yeah. actually like really cool to hear. So um, so then you graduated high school and you, like you still have like this um, like this interest in becoming a pilot. But can you talk about like you go to college and kind of talk about your experience there? What did you study? Right. So going to college, you know, it's a great time for most people. I went away. So uh, I went to the University of New Haven up in Connecticut. And what I loved about this college is that far enough from my mom where she couldn't just roll up on me and surprise me doing whatever I was doing, but close enough where I could just take uh, the metro in town and get there in about two hours or drive, drive on I-95 in an hour. And uh, I decided to do electrical engineering. And the reason why I decided to do that um, was because, again, it was during my high school years, I had the opportunity to do a lot of programs. I had a lot of mentorship. And I did a couple of programs um, at SUNY Binghamton and another college for science. And I did some research when I was about 16 in electrical engineering. So I was interested in that. Fast forward when it was time to pick college colleges, I picked colleges that had either an aerospace program or an electrical engineering program. And the University of New Haven had a small, it was a international school, so diverse for me, which I liked. It had small classes and it had a good engineering program, small engineering program. They didn't have aerospace, so I went with electrical. And uh, so when I went up there, I mean, the college experience, I'm so glad I didn't go to an academy. Most people think I did, but I look at them and go, if you know academy people, you know I was definitely not an academy kid. Um, they're, they're just cut from a different cloth. Nothing good or bad about it. It's just they're different. And um, But, I mean, my, my college years, I partied quite a bit <laughs> in the beginning. As expected. <laughs> yes. Um probably a little too much, but I, I was experiencing, you know, I was on the basketball team for a year. They had a division two team. I did, um, I did ROTC for two years there. They had uh, air force ROTC and it was only until my junior year where, um, I failed the class and I said, okay, I got to stop messing around. I can't be partying. I can't like the experience. I took every advantage of the college experience. Like I, I, I don't really have any regrets. I could have been a better student, but I just had so much fun. It was good. (laughs) And then, um, do you talk about, um, like a summer program at the university of Maine? Yes. So, um, there, there is a, a common theme throughout my time growing up so I had a lot of people I had quite a few people in my life that have kind of guided me and has and have kept me on 
a good path. And I've had a couple of mentors and one of them, um, Dr. Morrison, I met him when I was uh, a freshman. I was taking uh, physics my first year, my first semester. So calculus-based physics, and he was the teacher. And for some reason after class, we talk a little bit and we just developed this rapport. And he said, that, hey, I would love for you to do some work study for me. And great thing is I, I needed work study credits to make some money. So I started working for him in the, in the physics department and we became really good friends. I mean, he, you know, he really just talked to me quite a bit. He had uh, four daughters of his own. So he treated me like his fifth one. And fast forward in my junior year, he, <laughs> he forced me to apply to a program uh, in Maine, in the University of Maine, um, that it was a national, um, I forgot what the program was, but they did research, summer research. He's like, you're going to do it. And I'm like, nah, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to have fun during my summertime. He's like, nah, you're going. And I'm like, no. And he's like, you're going to apply. So he makes me apply. And, uh, I got picked up because I had electrical engineering research experience and, uh, spent, two months up at the University of Maine and had a great time, great experience. Uh, did a lot of stuff in sound acoustic wave sensors, uh, did some research in that. So um, it was something that I had done before. So it was, it was good. It was well worth it. Uh, can you explain like what a sound acoustic uh, wave sensor is? So it's, so it used to be, I don't know if it's used now, but it's, it was used, it used to be used in industry. So, what they have, <laughs> I'm about to geek out. Sorry. Sorry, Please folks. <laughs> um, so are you familiar with like vacuum technology, vacuum system, where uh, it basically, it creates a vacuum, this system. And in there you can, this was a sputtering machine, which actually takes uh, a type of material and thinly lays it on maybe a slide or some type of other material. So that's how semiconductors are made. So what they used to do is they would make sensors for this in industry to detect certain types of gas. So I think at that time, what we were sputtering, we were taking tungsten trioxide and, and, and seeing the different measures, the thicknesses of it, and seeing how that would work as a sensor. It was just a very specific thing in during the summer research. So that's what I was doing. So I learned how to use a sputtering machine. Um, I, yeah, I learned how to operate it to the chagrin of the, the, um, the student, like the, I don't wanna say the intern, but the guy who was getting his PhD and doing research out there. So he, he was a good dude, but he didn't like to let me go on my own and do stuff. And I'm the type of person like, if you give me the reins, I'm off to the races. I'm not going to break anything, but I'm good. So I had to prove to him offline that, hey, I can clean the system. I know how to work the system. And he was pretty impressed at the end. At first, I don't think he liked me too much, but I, I was pretty aggressive. You know, <laughs> that Star Trek thing, I guess. <laughs> and uh, can you kind of talk about how do you, um, like, what's your path joining the military? My path to join the military 
So there was, I knew when I got to college, there's two ways you could be a pilot, right? So to be an astronaut, you got to be a pilot first. I wanted to fly the space shuttle. So you have to be a pilot. Of all the branches of service, the two that stuck out to me were really the Navy and the Air Force. So when I was in college, I did Air Force ROTC. And I'll be honest, the Air Force was not for me at the time. I just thought the people in that ROTC program were just not, just, I just didn't feel it very well. And uh, it was nothing bad. I just wanted something a little bit more rigor. No offense to my Air Force brethren. And so I waited till I left or till I graduated college and I started talking to recruiters in New York. At that point, I just decided I was going to be um, a naval aviator or pursue the Navy because one, um, I had done some research and looked at, uh, I went down to the museum in Pensacola and they, and you're looking at most of the astronauts at that time and it looked like they were mostly naval aviators. Another reason why is that you get to land a boat and what's more difficult, landing on a big runway or landing on a moving vessel. So I was like, I think I could do that. Um, so that's why I picked the Navy first. I thought being a pilot in the Navy was cooler, obviously after Top Gun, you know, and I just thought it would be a better fit for me and my personality, which I was correct about. Or can you talk about like your first flight experience? I know that in the book, it was the, I think it was the T-34 aircraft. Yeah, it was the T-34C. The first aircraft I've ever flown in. Um, it was one of the first. And. Oh, man. I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, it was everything I, I thought of. I was a little nervous that, hey, maybe I would get sick. But that wasn't the case. It was, uh, you know, we, we took off and I was flying with, uh, I think his name was Lieutenant Hernandez at the time. And he was a pretty mild, very nice guy, but very mild guy. And we just went out and he just showed me the area, showed, showed me where I was going to fly, showed me reference points. But I just remembered, you know, just taking off and I just wanted to be giddy like a kid. But I, you know, you're a young officer, you have to present very well. So I internalized all of that. And then at the end, when he's uh, saying, hey, is there anything you want to see? you know, any type of flight. So most, most of the time students say, oh, I want to see a loop. I want to see a, a split ass. I want to do some aerobatics. And I was like, I just want to go upside down. And he's like, he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like sighing because inverted flight's annoying. <laughs> you're like Maverick from uh, Top Gun. When yeah. You know, you gotta, you gotta, um, you know, you're doing half an aileron roll and then you have to kind of push forward on the stick to keep the nose up because you don't want the nose once you turn upside down you don't want to let it go through the horizon so you have to push the stick to keep the nose going this way and it's a little uncomfortable and then all the dirt in the aircraft because you know these aircraft were flown by students it's all coming to the canopy that's upside down it's 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 kind of gross yeah <laughs> the t-34 had been out for many many years so but i thought it was the coolest thing i was like this is awesome 
And he's like, all right. <laughs> that is all awesome. Right, Jedi. And when you're in like flight school, um, can you kind of talk about flight school a little bit, but also how do like, how do students, um, maybe like, do they pick their aircraft? How do they go into certain sections like Top Gun, helicopters, stuff like that? Yeah. So, and this is based off of my knowledge in the 1990s and then later the 2000s when I became an instructor. And so the Navy at that time had more or less three fields. You could go uh, jets, props, or helos. And in the prop community, sometimes some people would go uh, and fly maybe E6s or they would uh, do, I think, um, I think C-22, not C-22s, but I forgot the other one. Um, and then you had jets. So when you went to the jet pipeline, you'd learn and then you'd figure out which specific jet you would go into in advanced training. And same as helicopters, you'd fly the TH-57 Bravo and Charlie. And at the end of that, you'd put your dream sheet down or what you want. And then you'd, you would uh, get what you, you know, whatever the needs were and how you ranked, how they racked and stacked you. So after basic, um, after primary flight training, they tabulate a score from you called an NSS score at the time, Navy standard score. And that's how they rack and stack who gets jets, gets helos and gets props. And then you go through intermediate training and then advanced training. And at the end, they rack and stack you again. And they figure out if you get helicopters, you go H-60 Bravos, H-60 Foxtrots. If you, you know, fly, you know, Hueys, whatever it is. So that's how they, that's how it works. When I finished flight school, there's a cutoff for jets. And I don't know if that still exists. I, I heard from a previous person who just selected recently that still exists. So I missed the cutoff by nine tenths of a point. And uh, so I knew, okay, I wasn't going to get, I wasn't going to get fighters and that's all right. I was just like, man, I just need to get some weapons on my aircraft because I, you know, I'm just, that's how I roll. Some people like props, some people like transports. I wanted something that uh, had weapons on it. <laughs> and that happened, so. That's great. And can you talk about, so you end up becoming a helicopter pilot. And yes. what did you end up, uh, what was the aircraft that you were flying? So I ended up getting a SH-60 Bravos. So, um, and I think it was a great aircraft. Uh, it still is. I mean, they don't fly them anymore, but they fly the Romeos. So the SH-60 Bravo at the time was just um, a multi-purpose aircraft. It was HSL stands for Helicopter Anti-Submarine Light. So it's a sub-hunter. But we also did a little bit of surface to uh, air to surface type stuff. So we had the capability to have a penguin missile at the time, Hellfire missiles. We had FLIR. We had torpedoes for subs, sauna buoys to listen to. And we also had what was called a magnetic anomaly detector, MAD system. That was basically this big magnet that drug behind the aircraft that can detect big pieces of metal in the water, i.e. submarines. So that was just, uh, you know, pretty, pretty cool for me. 
And I like that. And it was just, it's a plug and play system. So every day you go out, you don't know what you were going to do. You prepare for everything. Again, it goes back to, hey, I learned all these things and I have this particular skill set. What's happening and how do I use the tools that I, I've been given to navigate that? So I was good with it. No, that's pretty cool. And I was, uh, I also wanted to ask you about, um, usually when I watch like movies, you see like the, big um navy ships that drop like the, they're like the minesweepers and they drop the depth charges for the submarines but you're in a helicopter right yes. so and you can use there was like an exercise in the bahamas and you had to like drop a torpedo out of the helicopter or something right so um every year you got to get called in the weapon systems that you work at least f- from my standpoint that's always what it is and uh, we used to go to autech which is uh Autech, I don't remember what Autech stood for, but there's a base out in Andros Island in the Bahamas, uh, the biggest Bohemian island, I believe. Don't quote me on that. But the depth of the water is very deep. There's two things that go on out there, bone fishing for all those, you know, fishing enthusiasts. And we go out there to, you know, practice torpedo dropping because of the depth of the ocean. And so we'd go out there yearly to recertify for that. So um, basically we fly a mission. We would hunt, um, a, you know, basically a decoy and we would use our tactics on that and determine it. And, and we would have, um, we'd actually have uh, events out there where we would compete with other squadrons on who had the better drops. So, you know, it's pretty fun. It does sound fun. <laughs> and how many years were you a helicopter pilot for? And um, and and can you talk about like deployments, or uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was uh, I was a helicopter pilot. I flew HS. I, I flew H uh, sixties from nineteen ninety six to two thousand. I was deployed in. I went to the Mediterranean and then the North Arabian Gulf about a month after we got there. Cause during that time, Saddam was, he was acting up. So they sent a huge contingent out there. We were with the, the George Washington battle group. I was on the, the Normandy CG 60 at the time. My second deployment was to South America on UNITAS. And that was a, that was about a four month deployment. So we did a lot of exercises with the South Americans and um, it was kind of a, it was a lot different from being in the Middle East. This was more of a, you know, working with our allies to do anti-submarine and do other exercises with where the ships were involved as well as um, their air assets. And then of course, everybody's uh, life changed on 9-11 uh, can you talk, maybe talk about where you were on 9-11? Yeah, 9-11, I was sitting at home um, getting ready for a flight. Um, at that time, I was out of the H-60 community. I actually got picked up to fly to be an instructor for the T-34 and then follow on from that uh, upgrade to the T-6, which was a new trainer that both the Navy and the Air Force were flying, or that both the Navy and the Air Force purchased. And 
they selected four Navy instructors. And I was one of those that were selected to go to Randolph Air Force Base. So at that time I was in Texas. And on 9-11, I just remember sitting on my couch and I think Oprah was on, I'm almost sure of it. And all of a sudden breaking news goes in and, you know, I'm like just everyone else that day looking in shock at, you know, these uh, planes going into the World Trade Center. And I remember calling my boyfriend, who's now my husband at the time, and we were discussing, you know, what was that the plane? Was it a missile? What was it? Because, you know, there's all this stuff on the news. And when the first tower fell, I just remember my mom actually used to work downtown at a post office. She's a post office worker. So she used to work down by the, the buildings and I could not contact her. So um, I wasn't sure if she was still working there. She had moved uptown a little bit at that time, but still, you know, it's just kind of that gut-wrenching feeling when none of the circuits are working because it's just total chaos and what was going on. But I, I also remember that I was like, I was annoyed because now I'm an instructor and I'm not going to go out to the fight. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, let's, let's go do some work. It's time to work. So, um, but it wasn't in the cards for me for the next couple of years. We had to train the next uh, group of future pilots, which was still cool. But, um, you know, as a, when you're, you know, when you have an aircraft that you've flown, you know, that's, that's where you want to be. And then eventually you joined the Air Force. And can you kind of like, when was the first time you heard about the U-2 plane? So my husband and I, we have conflicting stories. We, we joke about this because he says, I recommended it, but you didn't pay attention to me because it was me. And I, I said, you might have said something. I said, but my boss, who was an Air Force um, lieutenant colonel at the time, you know, he was talking. He's like, Meryl, you're going to get out in the Navy because I was going to um, resign my commission and go back to school because I still want to be an astronaut. So I was going to do it. Uh, basically as, you know, just get my PhD and, and, and move on. But he's like, you should look at the other programs you offer. You can fly at that time. They still had the F-117s, the B-2s, B-52s. And I was like, oh, and then the U-2. And he said, and I'm like, huh, let me check this out. And then I looked at the program. I looked at what it did. And I was like, that's pretty cool. They, they fly with pressure suits. Their mission's cool. Reconnaissance. Um, no weapons. Okay, that's fine. But they fly and they do this unique mission. Not a lot of people do it. Go back to early childhood. What tools can I put in my toolbox now at this time to be more um, interesting for NASA as an astronaut? And I'm like, maybe being a YouTube pilot is the way to go. So I said, um, all right, let me apply to the YouTube program. And I did. I applied to the YouTube program. And the same breath, when you apply to the YouTube program, you have, actually had to apply and do an inter-service transfer, which is going from one branch of service to the next. And so you had to apply for those uh, Air Force Personnel Center, AFPC, which is 
they deal with all the people and where people move. It's similar to the Navy uh, detailer, which is the person responsible for where you go next, if you promote where you go, if you're leaving. And um, I sent a letter to AFPC requesting to go to the Air Force in accordance with the instruction. And so I got my application for the YouTube program went straight to Beale. They saw my application. They invited me out to an interview. However, AFPC sent me a letter back saying, uh, we're, thank you for your interest in the Air Force, but we can't accept you at this time. And I'm like, huh, well, another service that doesn't talk to each other. So I call up AFPC and I said, uh, I said, hey, I, I've got this invitation from Beale. And they said, okay, well, we're, we didn't expect that, but that's fine. If you make it in, if you make it through the interview and get accepted, we'll accept you into the Air Force. And I was like, okay, no problem. And can you talk about um, like what are some like is there a YouTube? I mean, I imagine I don't know though. Like a YouTube flight school that you go through, and like what are the requirements that you got to meet to become like a pilot? Um, so. The re the requirements are the requirements at that time. You had to be a previous and you had to fly have flown a previous aircraft, and I think have about fifteen hundred to two thousand hours. I know those requirements. I think have changed over time. You also had to be an instructor in another aircraft, and I'm not sure how many hours. I think you, you might have needed anywhere from five hundred to a a thousand instructor hours. Um, you had to show your performance reports. You had to show, um, you know, how you've flown throughout the years. So that was very important. If you were a student that, or a pilot that wasn't so good, they probably wouldn't accept you because U-2 is, um, it's definitely a unique aircraft to fly and it's not meant for everyone. I always say that this aircraft, even though it flies slow, it's subsonic, it'll kill you faster than anything I've ever seen if you're not paying attention. Um, she, the U2, the Dragon Lady, she can be very unforgiving at times. And sometimes you're just on for the ride. So uh, they wanted to make sure when you came into the program, you had a lot of experience and knowledge and that you're... The YouTube program, you typically are qualified in about 20 flights, maybe less, maybe 17 flights. I don't remember. So it's a very quick uh, ramp up to be qualified in the YouTube, and then you do your mission qualifications, then you deploy. It takes about a year. Um, before that, you get qualified in the T-38. So you're dual qualified. So you're qualified in two aircraft. And for some people, that could be a little overwhelming. So that's why they invite you out to an interview to see if you are suited for what the U-2 does, because I always say it's the land of the not quite right. People who fly this aircraft, we've got to be a little mentally, uh, like we're mentally strong, but we're a little mentally quirky as well, because you're sitting in an aircraft by yourself for hours on end, you know, as big as a small car, like a, a telephone booth. And you can't get up and go to the bathroom and you're eating food out of a tube. And if you're claustrophobic, this is not the aircraft for you. So, and then you're flying, you're sitting the whole time and then you gotta 
you know, pick yourself back up for one landing that everyone's going to watch and you can't mess it up. <laughs> so it can be a lot of daunting. And you mentioned it. Um, I was, I always try to ask like some food questions. I just, I'm always interested and you have a, it's like a toothpaste tube of food. Oh yeah. Or can you, you kind of talk you? about, yeah, sure. Yeah. You want me to get up and show you? Yeah. All right. Hold on. Cinnamon applesauce. Is that what it says? Zapplesauce. Zapplesauce. So this one, this is one of the newer ones after I, I retired. Zapplesauce because it's um, a caffeinated beverage. So they put caffeine in some of our beverages. So uh, like this one is caffeinated chocolate pudding. Do you have like a favorite flavor and then what's your worst favorite flavor? Okay, so at that time, I, they've taken all these type, these flavors out. Um, my favorite was vegetarian pasta. I think I was the only one to eat it. No one else liked that at all. They were like, disgusting. Um, the worst, uh, we used to have New England clam chowder, which was, oh. Yeah, I imagine in the toothpaste, not, not great. do that? <laughs> So since I've left, they've come out with cinnamon. I think this one is caffeinated. Don't don't quote me on the Zapple sauce. But they have uh, truffle mac and cheese. I got a chance to try hash browns and bacon, which was pretty good. They had pepperoni pizza, which I never tried. I bet you it tasted like vegetarian pasta. Um, oh, and my other favorite that they took off the menu was uh, caramel pudding. That's just fascinating. <laughs> um, and going back like this, you mentioned before, there's some history with the U2, but I, uh, you have a funny vignette in your book about uh, Steven Spielberg that I, I wanted to ask you about if you wanted to talk about that. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was awesome. So um, the U2 was designed by Kelly Johnson. It started flying missions in 1955. In 1960, Gary Powers was shot down. And uh, the movie Bridge of Spies, a Steven Spielberg movie starring Tom Hanks, talks about it's the story centers around the lawyer in which Tom Hanks plays, and I forgot the lawyer's name, who brokers a deal between getting back Gary Powers by trading a Soviet spy or a Russian spy that they, that the, that America had. And in the meantime, he also brokered a deal for another student that got stuck when they built the wall in Berlin. And so as part of this movie, um, DreamWorks came out to be Air Force Base to do all the flight scenes with the U-2, because why not? I mean, the U-2s fly out of Beale. So Steven Spielberg came out for a couple of days. And at that time, I was a lieutenant colonel and I was I was a deputy ops group commander at the time, but I somehow I got on working with DreamWorks as the liaison kind of between the base and the rest of the, the crew. The wing commander at the time knew me. He's like, Merrill, just go do what you need to do. I trust you. And I'm like, yeah. all right, cool. And um 
So we got an aircraft. I worked with another maintenance um, master sergeant, and we got an aircraft to use for the scene of the U-2 taking off. And we used a pilot that was needed a training sortie because he was going to deploy like two days later. And we set all this stuff up. So it took a couple of months to set up, but we had it all set up. So the day that they were going to fly um, the aircraft, Steven Spielberg was with me. We had coordinated all the safety protocols and everything. And I had the mobile, which is a pilot in an aircraft, a pilot in a car that monitors the aircraft and gives the pilot calls because we didn't, we haven't discussed the U2 yet, but you have a mobile that gives the pilot who's flying calls because it's very hard to judge height in the U2. So we have someone giving altitude calls because you have to stall the U2 at two feet. You can't land it like a normal aircraft because of the bicycle configuration. So the mobile was out there. I was out there with Steven Spielberg and the main actor who was uh, playing Gary Powers. And um, we had a whole bunch of camera crews on the runway. Well, before the aircraft took off, the mobile, which also had a camera on the car, had some issues with it. So he had to get off the runway. And so he said to me, hey, Merrill, can you make sure the aircraft gets off and do the final checks? And I'm like, yes, because I was in the brief. We had briefed this all out, so I knew everything that was going on. So I do the final checks. I salute the aircraft off and I say, you know, give them a thumbs up. You're clear to take off. The aircraft takes off. And after that, I turn back around and Spielberg says, okay, can you drive me to the next shoot? Because they were shooting some other stuff as well. And I said, uh, sir, I can't do that because I'm with the aircraft. The mobile and the aircraft are always together from engine start to engine shutdown. And he said, well, just stop here and I'll get out and I'll walk. And I said, sir, you can't just walk on the flight line. You're going to get rolled up by security. Like they don't play. So he, he was annoyed because I just told him no twice. And so the, the car was quiet and the other actor was looking at me like you in trouble. And I was like, like, I just, I couldn't like look eyes. I couldn't lock eyes with Spielberg because he was in the back and I'm like, oh. I felt it was, it was very awkward for me. And I said, sir, will it, this touch and go is going to take about 90 seconds. We'll be done in a second and I'll take you to the next scene. He didn't say a word. So we're waiting and I'm trying to give a play by play because it's awkward silence in the car. My other buddy, who's the mobile, the original mobile comes up and he goes, Meryl, I got it. And I'm like, cool. And then he says on the radios, goes to the chase and to the chase means that both of the cars are going to go. And I'm like, now he's locked me in a position because I couldn't just drive off. And I'm like, oh, this sucks. And so <laughs> we wait. So the aircraft comes down. It's coming in for a landing. My buddy goes first. He's giving calls. I follow tightly behind um, the mobile car. And I mean, pretty tight. Spielberg is saying nothing, but he takes out his phone. And he starts, you know, he starts recording. Right. So not saying a word. He makes the calls, the mobile makes the calls, the aircraft lands, everything is good. The aircraft takes back off again because he's going to do his training mission because he's preparing to deploy. We go off the runway and we go back. 
And Steven Spielberg goes, that was awesome. He's like, that was the best. He's like, Meryl, I'm so glad you made me stay in here. And he just like, he starts, you know, just going off. He just like was really excited. And quite frankly, I felt a sigh of relief because, you know, I, I didn't want like Steven Spielberg to not like me. <laughs> so uh, he was happy. And when we went to the next, I drove him over to the next hangar bay for the next scene. And he gets out of the car and his producer comes. He's like, hey, governor, we got this next because he used to call him governor. We got this next thing set up. He goes, no, wait. I want to tell you what Meryl just did. And he just like relays the whole story and he's all happy. And he's like, yeah, for that moment, we're BFFs. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Spielberg were like this from this to this. That's amazing. Yeah. So, um, you know, in all seriousness, Steven Spielberg is, he is an amazing person. He is a genius. Um, it was an honor just to, be there, watch him for two days working his magic and just getting a just a small glimpse on how he his perception of the world and how movies and what he wants people to see. I was like, wow. Yeah, I see why he has a lot of accolades and awards. And I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, somebody like your deployments that you went on. I know you went to like Afghanistan and Iraq. I just kind of want to give the listener um an idea of like the type of missions that you did and maybe like yeah like just kind of like an overview of if someone doesn't know like the missions that you did just kind of do you know what i'm saying yes i do so the u2 <clears throat> the u2 is a high altitude um intelligence surveillance reconnaissance aircraft isr isr platform the reason why we wear the pressure suit is because of the physiological changes up at altitude. Anything above 50,000 feet, you need to pressure breathe. Above 63,000 feet is Armstrong line. If the cockpit depressurizes, which at the time that I was flying was pressurized to about 29,000 feet, now it's pressurized to 15,000 feet. And any type of cockpit depressurization above 63,000 feet and you don't, you're not wearing a pressure suit to keep your body at about 35,000, your life expectancy will be a matter of seconds. So that's why we wear the pressure suit. It provides 100% oxygen where we pressure breathe, and it also inflates to keep our body at 35,000 feet if the cockpit inadvertently depressurizes. In order to... What, what that does for the U-2, because the U-2 is this intelligence surveillance asset, it doesn't go supersonic. It's subsonic aircraft, but it loiters. Its loiter time is incredibly big. I can't get into numbers with you on that, but most of my missions when I flew in over Afghanistan or Iraq were in excess of nine, 10 hours. Okay, so single seat by yourself in a pressure suit. So I just wanted to paint that picture. To get ready for that flight, a couple of things. The day before, you know, you're really watching what you're putting into your body because there's no bathroom to get up and go to if you have to go. So number one is fine. Number two is a no-no. 
And if you do stuff that triggers number two and you go up into YouTube, I will tell you it's one of the most uncomfortable things and painful and downright it will end up in an emergency for you if you don't take care of it. So the day before you're really watching what you eat, the day of typically how it works out, it's, it's easily a 12 hour day for us. We'd wake up, we'd have to arrive to the squadron um, two hours and 15 minutes prior to takeoff. When we did that, we would uh, brief with Intel, we'd brief with maintenance, and then we'd go to what's called the physiological support detachment or the people who worked in the physiological support squadron. Those are the people who maintain our suits. And we would get dressed up and they integrate us in the suit and then they integrate us into the aircraft. They make sure that we're on 100% oxygen approximately one hour, at least one hour prior to takeoff. The reason why is because you need to, our body's like 100% oxygen. When you're up at altitude, you are susceptible to physiological things such as decompression sickness. Decompression sickness is caused by nitrogen bubbles in your body. If you breathe 100% oxygen, the nitrogen bubbles are kind of replaced with that 100% oxygen. So basically you're off-gassing yourself before you go into a flight. Make sense? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I'm throwing a lot out there. So <laughs> um, we, we would get on 100% oxygen an hour prior. They, the physiological support person will escort you to the aircraft. You have a mobile that we already talked about that is basically your wingman in the car. They have pre-flighted the aircraft for you. They've read the forms for you for maintenance. You get in the aircraft, the support technician integrates you in the aircraft, hooks up your oxygen, hooks up your vent air, all that stuff. They close the canopy, you start up, you take off. So typically when we're flying, when we're going to a mission, we brief it with the intel as to what we're gonna do. So for that day, they'll tell us, well, you're gonna work in this kill box or you're gonna work in this area. You're gonna be talking to, these are the ground troops that are on the ground. Uh, these are the planes that are gonna be flying um, overhead. And our responsibility today is for X, right? So. You know, at the time, uh, Osama, bin Laden, Osama bin Laden was around, maybe where we were flying, they'd be like, hey, we're going to be searching here, or we're going to be doing this, we're going to be doing that. And so you'd fly that, and typically we had a, a plan of a route that we we're going to fly. Once we checked in on station, uh, we'd call up if there were some troops in contact, or troops that were on the ground, we would try to, we can actually talk to those guys at times and say, hey, hey, I'm on station, do you need anything? Is there anything that's going on? Um, that's, that's the one thing I liked about the U2. You're kind of like that angel in the sky, like just surveying and kind of helping. And they, you check in and they'd be like, yeah, no, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing. So 
um, we would just fly the route that we're given. And if there was something that was going on, we have what's called a mission on scene commander, a mock, who is another intel person at another location. So really quick, the U2 takes imagery and collects signals on board. Those things are offloaded to what's called a distributed ground station or DGS. And through there, it, they have a lot of analysts and people who analyze the information and they take that, package it and give it to the customer, whoever the customer may be. Make sense? So sometimes we're talking to a customer. Sometimes there's someone who reaches out to us and says, hey, we need something. And then they become the customer and we provide that information to you. Or other times I would be told something that would have to do with a, a troop in contact and I would relay that information. So that's what we do. And we are very, you know, pilots in the U2, we're all different, but we're all, you know, gauged to like, if something is going down or we hear something or see something, we can help change what our current mission is. And we do dynamic tasking and go out and do something else. So I always used to, I, I liked it because we were, we did not put rounds on target, but we were part of that chain. And I enjoyed that part about it because we would help with the troops on the ground. We would help with battle damage assessment. We, we can do communications relay. So uh, similar to what I did in the H60, minus the weapons. That is like super fascinating. And I forgot to ask, uh, do you have a call sign or did, was that the dragon lady? Did, did that become your call sign or was it? <laughs> I, you know, I've never had a call sign that stuck. Never. So um, in the Navy, I had frosty for a while because I had severe frostbite during training one time, almost lost some digits. Um the Dragon Lady came about when I did the reality show Tough as Nails. And I was wearing this shirt, actually. And when <laughs> the first, you know, you don't know what the camera guys are doing because there's like hundreds of camera people around just filming you in your all your pain. And <laughs> you're not looking really, you know, you're unglory, I guess. And uh, the first episode came out, they like zoomed in on on my chest and it said dragon lady and from then on it was stuck like yeah you're the dragon lady i'm like it's the name of the youtube but they're like nah you're the dragon lady so <laughs> that's where it comes from so it's the name of the youtube and uh i i think the brotherhood's okay with me using it i, I mean I it's a pretty well. cool <laughs> yes and it's a pretty cool nickname like if you're gonna have a nickname it is dragon lady. <laughs> yeah and i'm i'm pretty loud and, and most people know i'm uh you know i got that side of me so I was gonna, eh, I was gonna ask about like, I'll just ask it. Uh, like you also do like when you're in Iraq. You talked about in the book, um, like if there was ever like an American or a contractor or somebody who went missing or got captured, that's right, also so, like a mission that you guys. Were yeah, doing? it was a soldier. It was uh, towards the end of my mission, and I was about to go home, and because they were gonna. You know, I was just at the end. I was probably flying about eight plus hours at that moment. And then they said, hey, we just got on the, the net that a soldier was taken. Can you stay on station? And, you know, you quickly go from 
this point of, okay, we're going home, getting your, in your mind, your checklist to like, nah, we got, we still got work to do. So um, I quickly calculated how much longer I could stay. And based on everything, I gave him about 20 to 30 minutes. And I said, yeah, this is what I can, this is what I could do. Hey, upload me where, where you want to fly me. They gave me some kind of box pattern, which is something similar you would see in helicopters when you're doing search and rescue. And I just began flying that and just trying to figure out. We did not that day, uh, you know, it was unsuccessful. And then once I reached what we call bingo fuel, I, I exited the, the area. And how many, um, or how many years did you do with the U2? How many flight hours, total flight hours did you have, uh, combat hours? And yeah. Yeah, so I flew in the U2 program for 2004 till I retired. So about 13 years. Um, I have over a thousand hours and over 300, over a thousand hours in the U2, 330 combat hours in the U2. I know some people are saying, well, a thousand hours in 13 years, but you have to remember I was a major select. So I did leadership tours and I did staff tours. So I did of those 13 years, five years I did of staff tour. So that was eight years flying in the U2. And even in some parts of the U2, I, I did, I worked at the wing level and, and, and stuff like that. So I did about five deployments during that time. And then when you retired, um, what have you been doing post-retirement? Post-retirement has been equally as been busy. Um, we talked about it in 2020. I was on a, I filmed a show, a reality show called Tough as Nails that aired in 2021. In 2021, I came out with a book. Um, I started, when I retired from the military, I started motivational speaking to uh, motivate, especially young people into the STEM field and, and flying and just being better versions of themselves. I became a personal trainer to also do the same because I feel like fitness is huge. It's big in my life, music, fitness. And I use that a lot with young kids. Um, Nothing more fun than going to a junior high school and kids are mouthing off. I'm like, let's do some pushups right now. And then they get like all more like, I'm going to beat this old woman. I'm like, yeah, you're not. <laughs> and uh, that's, I mean, is that enough or should I, should I be doing more? Uh, well, I think it's awesome. <laughs> motivational speaking. Um, we, uh, during that time, we increased the size of our family we brought a young girl into our, our home who is now, you know, she's my daughter. You know, I, I have my son and uh, yeah, just kind of my husband in his own right is doing some great things. He's about a hundred pound brain. He works at Lawrence Livermore. He's a health physicist. He does, he does some amazing work. So I'm actually not the smartest one in the family. <laughs> and uh, for the, just a uh, one, like, one of the last uh, questions I just forgot. I just think, um, I don't know why I didn't ask, but can you talk about tough as nails, the show and what was, what was the show? What was your experience? How'd you do? Absolutely. So tough. So yeah, tough as nails <laughs> is 
was a new show. Um, they're going to air season four on January 4th. It was the executive producers are Phil Kogan. He's the host of Amazing Race and his wife, Louise Kogan. And what they do is they take people who are the backbone of the of America, like the steel workers, like industry, the steel workers, the cement workers, the brick masons, all these people, 12 of us, six men, six women, veterans, all these people, we come together and we compete as teams and as individuals for cash prizes. The cool thing about this show is no one gets eliminated. And what's even more cooler is, or much more cooler, is that they talk about our lives and all of us have some type of inspiring story to inspire the, you know, America. And it's, it's, they're not airing it overseas, but it's, it was all about like, we want a reality show for in, during Kogan, um, Phil Kogan's perspective. And I'm just going to paraphrase what he said, a reality show that inspires people. And it's not about drama and it's not about, um, he said, she said, we have enough of that in America. We have, we have too much of that in America. We need people to uplift one another. And that's what we did. So it's definitely a different style of show, but I really like it. And um, I was very grateful to do the show. It's, and the events they do for you, uh, the events that you have to participate in, it's straight up hard labor. Like it's hard and it's all based around the trades. So I did everything from working in a bulldoze, like operating a bulldozer to making concrete to moving slime eels, which was one of the grossest things I've ever done, um, to building with my team um, a garage with hammers and nails, no nail gun and prefab wood. So spoiler alert, I did not win the individual prize, but my team savage crew we won the overall team prize so um it was just great i mean i met i met four other people who were like they're like my brothers and sisters it was like being in the military again so this show came at the time when i was retired um i was questioning a lot of things even though i was doing motivational speaking and stuff just for me working in 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 the civilian world it's different as a military person uh the transition is difficult for a lot of us in certain ways, and I'm no exception. So um, it was nice to be in a show where you had this family style and this camaraderie, and it was it was good. It was a good experience. That's great to hear. And if somebody wants to uh, reach out to you for maybe like a public, have you public speak for them, or they want to um, read your book, how can they find you? Uh, you want social media? I am definitely on social media. So my home on social media is Instagram. I'm dragon lady 788 788 because that's my pilot number. There's like 1155 pilots, YouTube pilots. I'm number 788. Um, you can also, if you want me for a speaking event, contact Harry Walker agency. Um, I'll go to the website and they will get back to you. You can also, you could DM me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. I'm slower on Facebook than Instagram. I'm, I know I look old and I'm old, but Facebook is not my place. Um, you'll see me occasionally on TikTok under Meryl Tengestall, LinkedIn, Meryl Tengestall. And uh, my website is MerylTengestall.com. If you want to buy the book Shatter the Sky, 
you can look on Amazon or you can buy to order where books are sold, either Barnes and Nobles, um, Walmart, Target. We got it covered. And if you want it signed, you could DM me on Instagram and say, hey, I would I would like it signed and I could work something out with you. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks, Meryl, for coming on the Late Night History Podcast. Thank you so much for having me.